Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Well, if you would take your copy of God's Word and turn to Hebrews chapter 12, and as you're turning there, we'll be dismissing our children to our children's class. And so if uh, there are those participating in that class this morning, you can make your way to uh, the back there. Our volunteers will be there to greet you uh, and to instruct you in God's Word uh, this morning. Again, if everyone else would turn to Hebrews chapter 12 as we're continuing to make our way uh, through the book of Hebrews this morning, we're in chapter 12 verses 3 through 11, Hebrews 12, 3 through 11. So let me read our passage for us this morning, and then we will pray together and ask for the Lord's help. Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. What son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, uh, once again, we just want to say to you that Uh, We acknowledge that it's a privilege to gather together as your people. We don't deserve to be here, Father, even as this passage so freshly reminds us. We are a group of sinners. And we're only here because we have been redeemed by our glorious, majestic Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we thank you for his birth, his life, his death, and his glorious resurrection. All of those things standing in our place this morning. We thank you that you have sent your spirit to dwell in us. To awaken us to the sin that still dwells within us also. The sin nature we were all born with. That we are continually by your grace. By the power of your spirit. Through the truth of your word. Putting to death in our lives. So, Father, I pray that this passage would be a fresh reminder to us about our need to fight against sin in our life, to pursue holiness. Father, I know there are many of us in this room who are tired of the fight, 
we're growing weary of these sins that just continue to plague us. And some may even be on the edge of giving up and giving in altogether. And so, Father, even though this is a hard passage, I pray that you would use it to strengthen us this morning by your grace to help us keep on fighting, to stay in the fight, to keep putting sin to death, that we might pursue holiness and by your grace to us ultimately be made holy. And so, Father, we pray that you would do above and beyond what we could ever ask or think, above and beyond what we could ever do in our own strength this morning, through the truth of your word, by the power of your spirit. And so, Father, we pray all of this in the glorious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, last week as we began Hebrews chapter 12, we saw that the author of Hebrews was comparing the Christian life to running an endurance race, a long race. In other words, we're not running a sprint. We're in the middle of a marathon. Therefore, we must endure and this need for endurance has been a continuing theme we've seen even beginning uh, back in chapter 10 before we went into the hall of faith in chapter 11. The end of chapter 10, verse 36, the author of Hebrews said to us, we have need of endurance. And then he laid out example after example after example of men and women who uh, through faith endured to the end, faithfully following their God. And then as we began chapter 12, we saw again that we needed to run with endurance the race that is set before us. Chapter 12, verse 1. Chapter 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Again, the theme of endurance. And we see it again in this week's passage, verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. And then we will look in detail later at verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. So without question, the author of Hebrews wants us to see the need for endurance in the Christian life, right? When the Bible wants to emphasize something, one way it often does that is by repeating it. And it has been repeated over and over and over again that we need to endure. And because we need to endure, because it is a long race, because it's not a sprint, because it's not something we're going to finish briefly, chapter 12, verse 1 told us that we need to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Because we're not going to make it to the end of the race. We're not going to endure in this long marathon of the Christian life if we're weighed down. If we have sin that clings so closely, tripping us up with every step, right? You don't put on, you don't put on a weighted vest to run a competitive marathon, right? You don't swim laps with a 20-pound weight chained to your ankle, right? You might make it maybe one length of the pool. You're not going to make it many more, right? If you are running, enduring with weight, you're not going to make it to the end. And so God tells us in verse 1, we've got to lay those things aside, these weights that may or may not be sinful. They may just be keeping you from running toward Jesus. But also, we must lay aside these sins that cling so closely. And of course, the problem with sin is that it does cling so closely. 
It's hard to lay aside. It's hard to get rid of. It's hard to fight against, which is why I think the author of Hebrews spends verses 3 through 11 telling us how we need to go about that. In many ways, you can view verses 3 through 11 as a, as a long commentary or exposition or explanation of how it is we're going to obey verse 1 to lay aside the sin which clings so closely. How is it we go about doing that? How is it that God goes about doing that in our lives through the discipline that he brings to us? You see, this is not... This is not going to be an easy passage to work through together. In fact, it will likely mirror what we, uh, what we read in verse 11 where it says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. This might be a painful sermon to hear, a painful passage for us to walk through together instead of a pleasant one. But my prayer is that it will do the work of yielding, as verse 11 says, the peaceful fruit of righteousness in our lives. That God will use the painful words, the, the warnings, the discipline that he tells us the Lord brings upon us to bring about holiness in our life. Now, before we get into the details of working through this passage and all its specifics, I do think it's important just to lay down some biblical foundations here at the beginning because um, I think this passage and what I say could be misunderstood. So I just, on the front end, want to lay down some really clear biblical truths so there's not misunderstanding that we trip over as we move through this passage together. First, there is a clear focus on the discipline that God brings to his children in this passage. So I want to first just be sure we understand what this word discipline means and what it's referring to. This word for discipline that's repeated multiple times in this passage can also be translated as training. So, so the best way to view what this passage is talking about is more in terms of what I would call formative discipline. Not discipline that God is somehow using to, to punish you, but instead discipline that is used to shape us, to conform us, the image of Christ. It's still hard. It's still painful. But what we shouldn't do is you this discipline is talking about somehow God waiting in heaven, waiting on you to sin, and he's ready to pounce with some suffering because of the sin you committed today, right? That, that's not what this is talking about. This is this formative discipline that God wants to bring into our lives. And this hardship, this discipline, this even suffering is given to us by God to teach us to rely on him and to root out sin in our lives, right? So we see this in the life of the Apostle Paul. It's what God did for Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. Listen to what Paul says about himself. So to keep me... From becoming conceited. So let's just pause there. So Paul's not yet committed the sin of conceit and pride. No, he says to keep me from becoming conceited. That's, that's formative discipline. To keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. A thorn was given me in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to harass me. To keep me from becoming conceited. 
Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. Do you see that there? That's formative discipline. That's getting rid of conceit in Paul's life before he even commits it. But it was hard and it was painful. So painful that Paul pleaded with God to take it away from him. And so the final foundational truth I want to lay before us to get under our feet as we enter into this passage is therefore that the presence of suffering in your life, that persecution in your life that that God brings through discipline does not mean that you're a worse sinner than someone else. We don't measure someone's, the righteousness of someone's life or the sinfulness of someone's life by how much they are suffering. There is not a connection between the two. We see this even in John chapter 9 with the man who was blind from birth. John 9, 1 through 3. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, they're talking to Jesus here. They asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind, right? There's just an assumption. A suffering man means a sinful man. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then God brought healing to this blind man, and they glorified Jesus because of his ability to heal the man born blind. Paul was given a thorn in the flesh that the works of God might be displayed in him. So the presence of suffering is a good gift from God, a discipline that he brings us to form us into the likeness of Christ, and it is a good gift from him, and not an indication necessarily that you are a worse sinner than anyone else. So let's have that foundation under us so that there's no misunderstanding as we talk about the discipline of the Lord that he brings upon us. So having said all of that, let's look together at how we can, with the Lord's help, go about laying aside sin in our life. What does it look like to put sin to death in our life, to obey uh, chapter 12, verse 1, to lay aside every weight in the sin which clings so closely? There are three main truths I want us to see. Number one, if we're going to lay sin aside, we have to consider Jesus. We have to consider Jesus. Number two, we have to keep fighting. You have to keep fighting. And number three, we must develop a healthy understanding of God's discipline. Develop a healthy understanding of God's discipline. So let's start at the beginning. That If we're going to lay aside sin in our life, we have to consider Jesus. Look there with me again at verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Now, it may not be immediately clear what verse 3 has to do with putting sin to death or what it has to do with discipline that the Lord brings upon us. So I just want to take a moment to be sure that we can see the connection between verse 3 and our fight and struggle against sin and the discipline that the Lord brings to us. 
So first, I want you to see that the outcome of considering Jesus is that we may not grow weary or faint-hearted. That's what God wants the outcome to be, that we will not grow weary. Well, look ahead to verse 5. When the author of Hebrews is quoting from Proverbs chapter 3, he says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. In other words, if we're going to endure, if we're going to fight against sin, then we need to not grow weary. And the way we don't grow weary, verse 3, is by considering Jesus who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Of course, we also see, as I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, the, the call to endure, that Jesus endured from sinners this hostility. We have the same call in our lives in verse 7, that it is for discipline that we have to endure. The reason we need to not grow weary, the reason we need to endure is so that we can experience and be formed by the discipline that God will bring to our lives. And then, of course, verse 4 immediately tells us that this is about our struggle against sin. So everything around verse 3 makes clear that that's the context of verse 3. That's why we need to consider Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that we may not grow weary or faint-hearted in our battle against sin. Now, having said that, let me also make clear that verse 3 is not saying that Jesus was a sinner right? That he needed to endure because he needed to put sin to death in his life. That's not the point. No, it's just giving him, setting him before us as an example that we can follow when we face this kind of hostility against us. Just want to remind you that this was the context of the book of Hebrews. The, the reason the author of Hebrews wrote this letter is because this group of first century Jewish believers was facing severe persecution. They were facing hostility from sinners against themselves. And they had been through very difficult times. We saw it in chapter 10 that previous to Paul, uh, sorry, the author of this letter, previous to the author writing to them, they had already struggled significantly. Many of them had been in prison. And when some of them went to visit those in prison, they had had their property plundered, everything they owned taken away from them, ransacked. But they endured. And Paul reminded them of their faithful endurance. But now they're facing persecution again. And it seems that they're on the edge of giving up and giving in and throwing in the towel and just saying it's not worth it anymore. And rejecting Jesus altogether and sinning in the most grievous way possible by turning their backs on Christ. And so the author of Hebrews says to them and says to us that if we're going to endure and not give in to sin, we have to look to the example of Jesus. And the first thing we need to see is that Jesus didn't give in to disobedience and he didn't give up even when it got excruciatingly difficult. Right? We see that, first of all, in the Garden of, in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus knows that on that next day he's going to face the sufferings of the cross, both the physical sufferings and the spiritual sufferings of bearing the wrath 
of God in our place on himself. And he's there in the garden pleading with the Father that this cup of suffering would pass from him, but ultimately saying, not my will, your will be done. Whatever it takes for me to fulfill your will and bring glory to your name, that's what I'm willing to do. And uh, uh, Luke describes that moment as Jesus being in agony and praying with such earnestness that his capillaries began to burst and blood became mixed with sweat and he was sweating drops of blood in his agony and praying to the Father in that moment. But he endured. He didn't turn back. Of course, we saw this in verse 2 of Hebrews 12, that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. He endured even the physical suffering, even knowing that he was going to face the, the spiritual torment of having the wrath of all of his children poured upon him. He endured and did not give in so that he could obey the Father, carry out the will of the Father, and safely deliver all those given to him into eternity. Therefore, we must consider Jesus so that, so that as we look to him, we will not grow weary or faint-hearted. We can look to him as our example, as the one who endured and know that he will give us the strength. We can look to him and know that he has gone before us. He has endured more than we ever will. And he remained faithful and he will strengthen us to do the same. We look to the way he endured, which it tells us in verse 2 was by uh, looking to the joy that was set before him knowing that there would be an end to the suffering and that it would be an end of great joy in experiencing obeying and glorifying his Father. We also have that joy set before us. If we endure to the end, we will experience the eternal joy in the presence of God forevermore. And so this is meant to strengthen us and to energize us so that as we face suffering, we will not give in, but instead we will be strengthened and even energized as we are driven by the joy that can only be found in Jesus Christ. Now, as we face these struggles, here's the reality. We have to keep on fighting. And that brings us to the second way we put sin to death in our lives, that we lay aside sin. We have to keep fighting. Look at verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. The overarching, the overall implication of verse 4 for those Hebrew believers who are facing persecution and for us is that there is always more fight left to give. There's always more fight left to give. Remember, as I said, these Hebrew Christians were tempted to give in and give up. They were facing significant persecution. They felt going back to Judaism would somehow free them of this suffering. So what advice or instruction does the author of Hebrews give to these believers? I mean, this is staggering. We've talked about this a little bit earlier in this passage, but it is staggering and blunt what he says to them, right? 
Think about it, right? Think about a brother or sister in Christ coming up to you, and they are suffering. They're having a hard time, right? Maybe it's, a, maybe it's someone who lives in a closed country, and they're facing significant persecution. And you just want to, like, we just want to say encouraging things to them. Like, it, 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 might not, it might not be as bad next week. Like, the circumstances may change. Just keep hoping for it to get better and stay faithful. But what, is, what does God say? You might have to shed blood. You haven't yet resisted fully as you need to. You may not be able to wait it out and it get more comfortable. You may have to endure to the very end. It may cost you your life. Yes, you're struggling against temptation, but what he is saying to us is that resistance, that fight that you've been fighting still hasn't reached its pinnacle, namely the shedding of blood. So I think there are two analogies being drawn here. The first is, as we mentioned earlier, Jesus praying in the garden. So I just want us to meditate on that for a moment and look in a little bit more detail of what happens in the garden. Jesus went with his disciples up on the Mount of Olives into the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing what was coming to him. He took Peter, James, and John with him and walked into the garden with them, just those three. And he said, look, I, I want you all to sit here and keep watch. I want you to pray. I'm going to go over here a little bit further on my own, but, but I want you here keeping watch. Now, let's back up even a little bit more to even set the context for that moment. Just before that occurs, Jesus told all of his disciples, you're all going to leave me. Every single one of you is going to abandon me. And of course, as you probably know, if you've been in church for a while, Peter says to him, what? <laughs> not me. <laughs> it's not going to be me. Maybe these other yahoos, but I, I'm not going to be the one. Right? Even if it costs me my life, Jesus, I will lay down my life before I deny you. And Jesus basically, basically says to Peter, I'm praying for you, brother, right? We'll, we'll see. And they go into the garden with that context, right? They've been told by Jesus they're going to deny him. They're going to flee from him. They're going to walk away from him. And he says, so I want you to keep watch and Jesus goes further into the garden, and as we saw earlier, it's there that Jesus in agony is praying to the Father, knowing what he's going to have to face, but ultimately he's giving himself to the will of the Father, right? Whatever it takes to fill your will, it's, I'm on board. Let, let's go, right? Sweating, drops of blood. He is in such angst, pleading with the Father. And three different times in the night, Jesus returns to find Peter, James, and John asleep. And the first time he comes to them, he says to them, could you not keep watch with me for one hour? Couldn't you just give me a little bit? And listen to what Jesus says. This is so important. Why, this is the first time Jesus talked to them. Watch and pray 
that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Peter, I believe you that your spirit is willing. I know that's what you want. You don't want to deny me. I get it. I know it. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So pray that you will not enter into temptation. Right? So, so what? So they fell asleep the first time. All right, maybe that's understandable. Jesus comes out and says this to them. Look, look, your flesh is weak. You need to be pleading that you're not going to enter into temptation. But they basically ignore Jesus. Why? Why do they keep sleeping? Why do they ignore him? Because they were filled with pride. Because they thought they had fought enough. They thought they had struggled enough. They thought they were ready for the temptation that was coming their way. Jesus is over here praying, sweating drops of blood in agony, the perfect righteous man. And these weak, fleshed sinners are sleeping. I think that's a powerful picture of how our pride can keep us from fighting against sin and temptation the way we ought to. When we come to Jesus in prayer to fight against sin, he doesn't want us declaring to him how confident we are in our righteousness. He doesn't want us telling him how strong we are and how for the glory of his name and our own strength, we're going to make it. Now, what does he want from us? He wants us to plead with him and say, Father, if you don't give me the strength today, I'm going to fail you. I'm going to sin. I'm going to re- re- rebel against you. My flesh is willing. My spirit is willing, but my flesh is weak. Have we fought like that? in our prayers to our Father. I'm not saying the only faithful way to obey this passage is that you've got to sweat drop, uh, uh, like sweat drops of blood every time you pray every night. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying, have you wrestled with God over your sin? We have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, brothers and sisters. There is more fight left to give. So that's analogy one. I think also, though, the author of Hebrews also definitely has literal shedding of blood in mind here. Right? We saw that in chapter 11. These faithful men and women who had endured faced the shedding of their blood. Right? Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Right? They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. Right? Without question, these faithful brothers and sisters in chapter 11 shed their blood. And so, just to put it bluntly, and I'm telling you, the author of Hebrews is blunt here in verse 4. He is saying to these Hebrews believers about their, their persecution, he is saying to them, you need to get some perspective. Yes, it is, what you're facing is incredibly difficult. But you haven't even had to shed your blood yet. 
Others who've gone before you have. And they endured. God sustained them. He'll keep you also. He'll sustain you if you look to him. Lean on him. Depend on him. You haven't faced the kinds of struggles and temptations previous generations faced. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. If they are able to endure faithfully, if God is able to sustain them to the point of martyrdom and giving up their lives, then he can do the same for you. So keep on fighting. Don't give in. Don't turn back. And this leads us into the final way that we lay aside sin in our life. We have to consider Jesus. We have to keep on fighting. And both of those realities, considering Jesus and the call to keep on fighting, feeds into having a healthy understanding of God's discipline over our lives. We must, number three, we must develop a healthy understanding of God's discipline. Now, I don't like to do points and subpoints, but this passage lends itself to that. And so I just want to walk us through what, what do we need to understand about God's discipline as we fight against sin? So first, we need to see that discipline is a, is a gift from our good father. Look there with me at verses five through seven. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. So verse 5 begins with a, a gentle rebuke. He's calling them to remember what they ought to already know. And he quotes from Proverbs chapter 3, verse, uh, Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. And he reminds them that Proverbs 3, 11 addresses us as sons, as children, as belonging to God. And therefore, that discipline that he speaks of in Proverbs 3 is spoken of in regards to the children of God. That the discipline comes to God's children, that he sees us as his sons. We aren't his enemies through Christ, we are his adopted children. Therefore, when he brings hardship to us, the author of Hebrews is saying to us, we have to trust that it's for God's good reasons in our lives. And by the way, this context means that one form the Lord's discipline takes is when we experience hostility from sinners against ourselves. That is a way that God intends to shape us and train us and discipline us. And he says that we should not, verse 5, regard it lightly. Well, what does that mean? Well, remember, he's quoting from Proverbs, which Hebrew poetry. And often in Hebrew poetry, they would use parallelism, where they would say the same thing two different ways. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor be weary when reproved by him. So one way in which we regard lightly the discipline of the Lord is when we grow weary of his reproof. We grow weary and we just want to give in and we want to stop and we want to give up and not deal with the discipline God is bringing to us. And we want to turn our backs on and run away from it. And God says to us, no, if you grow weary of it, you are regarding it lightly and you, you need 
this discipline because, verse 6, it is coming from God to those he loves. It is an act of love for you and for me to face the discipline of our good and loving Heavenly Father. It is a good gift from him. So how do we respond to receiving loving discipline? What is the opposite of regarding it lightly and being, and being weary of being reproved by God? Well, the first line of verse 7 answers that question. So how do we not regard God's discipline lightly? How do we, how do, we do that? How do we, how do we remain faithful as we face this discipline? What does verse 7 say? It is for discipline that you have to endure. It is for discipline that you have to endure. Now that's, that's a fascinating statement. In other words, one of the reasons we have to endure through hardship is so that we can experience the full discipline of the Lord. So that we can be formed into everything God wants us to be. If it's true that the discipline that comes to us through suffering, physical suffering, through persecution, through facing hostility from sinners, through all the suffering that comes to us in our lives, if it's true that all of that is for our good, which Romans 8.28 clearly says to us, all things, all things, including all forms of suffering, work together for good for those who are called, right? It's for our good, if it's true that all the discipline that God brings to us to form us, just like it came to the Apostle Paul, to keep him from being conceited, that thorn in the flesh that was so difficult and miserable for him that he pleaded with God three different times to take it away from him, if all of that is good from God, then what we must be ready to do is learn everything he intends us to learn in the midst of that suffering. And the only way we're going to learn it is by enduring. That's ultimately what God left Paul with. He said, no, I'm, I'm not taking it away from you. You're going to have to endure because I don't want you to become conceited. You see, it's so important for us, as I said, we have to develop a healthy understanding of God's discipline because an unhealthy understanding that some lean into is we, we end up interpreting every hardship in our lives as the work of Satan. Or we interpret every hardship as a direct result of some particular sin that we've committed. Right? That's an unhealthy understanding of God's discipline toward us. It is not the work of Satan. It is the work of God. He might use Satan, but it's his work, right? He used Satan in Job's life. He let Job sift, he let Satan sift Job like wheat, right? But in the end, it was to teach Job deeper truths than he ever would have known otherwise. They are good gifts from God meant to shape us and conform us to the likeness of Jesus. And when we view it that way, we lean into God's grace and we endure so that we can learn all that God intends to teach us. Now, that does not mean that we shouldn't pray for those who are being persecuted, that the persecution would stop. 
it doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray for God to remove suffering from our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's not what I'm saying at all. It doesn't mean that you can't pray for God to take the pain away, whatever it may be, to remove the suffering from your life. That's not what I'm saying. It's not what the author of Hebrews is saying. It's not what God is saying. But what he is saying is in the midst of the suffering, when it's there, when it has not yet been taken away, if you're going to learn what God wants to teach you in that, in the suffering, you need to endure. And keep looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And we need to see it as a good gift from our good Father. Because ultimately, the second way we understand, have a healthy understanding of God's discipline is that it demonstrates, it demonstrates that we're God's children. What the author of Hebrews says to us is that one of the scariest places to be is to not experience God's discipline in your life. Right? What does he say in the second, beginning of the second half of verse 7? What son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. That's scary. Right? The presence of God's discipline in our life, which is painful and hard, is evidence that we belong to God. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying to us in verses 7 and 8. One of the ancient historic church fathers, Chrysostom, put it this way. It is those very things in which they suppose they have been deserted by God that should make them confident that they have not been deserted. Let me read that again. It is in those very things in which they suppose they've been deserted by God that should make them confident they have not been deserted. Right? Often in the midst of suffering, when we are experiencing God's formative discipline in our lives, we're tempted to think, God, you've given up on me. You don't care about me anymore. Why are you doing this to me? And the author of Hebrews is saying to us that we should be saying the exact opposite. Thank you for shaping me to be like Jesus. Look, I know this sounds idealistic. And I'm not there, right? I don't live this out perfectly. But I'm just telling you what God is calling us to this morning. He's calling us to see the discipline and hardship and suffering in our life, the hostility and suffering that comes as a good gift from him that demonstrates we belong to him because he loves us enough to shape us into the likeness of Jesus. Now, why is that? Why, why does it take? Why does it take that kind of suffering? Because that's what it takes to bring about holiness in our lives. And that brings us to the final, the final truth we need to know about God's discipline. Discipline brings about holiness. Look at verses 9 through 11. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. 
right? If you had a healthy home life, at least moderately healthy with parents who tried their best to love on you and to discipline you, right? No parent does it perfectly, which is, by the way, the point of this passage, right? That, that fathers, parents are limited in our ability to discipline children well. We only have a short time to do it, right? When they're in our home, we have a short time to do it. We can't do it for the entirety of their lives. When they turn into adulthood, they become responsible for their own lives, can only do it for a short time, and we are only able to do what seems best to us, right? They disciplined us, verse 10, for a short time as seemed best to them. So my children are sitting in this room, but I'll just admit in front of them, I'm not telling them anything they don't know, right? I'm telling you all the parents, other parents who for sure know this, often in parenting, you're just kind of figuring it out as you go, Right? You learn something new every day. You, like you may have a grand plan of how you think you're going to do it, but right, your, your children challenge you. You find sin in your own life, your own heart, laziness, selfishness, pride in your own heart. Right? You're, just, you're struggling to figure this thing out. You're just doing what seems best to you. Right? You're being guided, Lord willing, by God's word and being instructed and being encouraged by brothers and sisters in Christ. Like, no question about that. Right? But, but none of us finish parenting look back and say, man, I did an incredible job. That, man, I just, I could not have done it better. Right? No. And you young parents, if you think that's how you're going to feel, come talk to some of us who have older kids, right? You just do what seems best to you. You strive. But God does what's perfect. He does what's perfect and he does it throughout our lives to the last day not for a short time so that we may verse 10 share his holiness that's the goal now it's painful to get there that's what verse 11 tells us for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Why is that? Well, it's because sin clings so closely. It doesn't want to let go. And the reality is, in our own strength, in our own will and determination, we're not willing to put ourselves through the pain we need to put ourselves through to get rid of the sin. So God brings the pain to graciously rid us of it. C.S. Lewis said in his book, The Problem of Pain, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And one of my favorite scenes in the Chronicles of Narnia, in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, I don't have time to go into all the background of this, but Eustace is one of the characters in that story, and he's a brat. 
right? He's just a terrible kid. <laughs> and there comes a point in the voyage of the Dawn Treader where Eustace is transformed into a dragon, ultimately representing the ugliness that was already inside him. And there he is. He's a dragon. He doesn't want to be a dragon. It's a miserable existence as a dragon. He wants to be turned back into a boy. And uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan, the, the lion, re represents Jesus. And Jesus comes, uh, Aslan comes and does a work on Eustace the dragon to return him to his status of being a boy, to rid him of his body of a dragon. And Eustace later describes what that experience was like when Aslan is ripping away the dragon skin from him. And this is what Eustace said. The very, verse, the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. He peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I had done myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and, dark and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. You see, Eustace thought he had gotten the skin off of him, but he wasn't willing to do what it took to rip it off. Until Aslan came, and even at the cost of causing Eustace pain, was willing to get the skin off. Look, the formative discipline God brings to us is painful. Sometimes it's to rid us of the sin we already have. Sometimes it's to actually even keep us from sinning as he did for Paul with a thorn in the flesh. But it's always for our good. And it will always be painful. But only because it must be. Because it must be. Because we're not willing to go through the pain ourselves. And so God graciously brings it to us to awaken us and to rid our souls of the sin that stains us so that we might be made holy. Now look, here's, here's the hard reality. Every person in this room will experience different degrees of suffering and hardship and hostility. And I like to have answers as your pastor, but I can't tell you why some of you will suffer more than others. I don't know. But I do know that whatever suffering he brings to you is for your good and is for your holiness. And I do know, Lord willing, by his grace, that we as a church will be here to walk with you through it. And to be used of God to help 
us together be formed by him in the midst of our painful discipline so that the end of verse 11 it will later yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it that's the ultimate end goal right one day by God's grace we'll be sitting together in the new heavens and the new earth with all of the pain behind us and we will be eternally thankful for every suffering we endured because it got us there. Because it got us there, staring at the face of Jesus Christ, full of the joy of experiencing him forevermore. And we will be there only because of the finished work of Christ that stands in our place. He laid down his life. He endured the cross. He endured the hostility from sinners against himself. He did all of that so that he might redeem you. Therefore, he's going to do whatever it takes to get you to eternity. And it's often painful. But knowing this, having this healthy understanding of God's discipline, by God's grace, will help you endure. It will help you stand up. It'll help you look to Jesus. It'll help you endure even to the point of shedding blood if necessary. So therefore, by God's grace, let's not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Instead, let's endure together. See it as evidence that God loves us, that we belong to him. And let's keep on fighting that he might make us holy for our good and for his glory, that we might dwell with him forever, full of unspeakable joy. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for the mercy and grace that you shower upon us. Father, I think we all just have to acknowledge that your mercy and your grace and your love toward us often comes in ways that in our human flesh we simply don't desire. I confess that this morning, Father. I confess it from my own heart. And I know many, if not every person in this room would have the same confession. Father, I pray that in the midst of our sufferings, whatever form that may take in the lives of the individuals in this room, that by the power of your spirit and by your grace to them, you would help them to endure. That we would look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at your right hand even right now. Help us to consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that we may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Father, as we look to Jesus, help us to endure. There's going to be times, Father, when every single person in this room, myself included, wants to give up. And so I pray that you would give us an eternal perspective, that we would not give in, but that we would keep on fighting, that we would endure and not regard lightly the discipline that you are bringing to us. And I pray that you would awaken us, that we might be taught everything you intend to teach us, that we might be shaped and conformed in every way that you intend to shape us, that we might have every sin cut off from us, pilled away from us, no matter how painful it may be, so that we may be made holy for the glory of your name. Thank you, Father, for your kindness to us through the cross of Jesus and through the discipline you bring to us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name.
Amen.